Good morning. Let's go ahead and uh, begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come study today. Uh, we know that uh, your great love for us and your great desire to, uh, to rid this world of all pain and suffering and sickness and to restore it back to your original design. We ask that we can be part of the process in helping take a message that will prepare the world for your return. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And a couple of announcements this morning as we get going. Uh, July 4, class will meet here as usual, July 4. We will have class as usual, but this is mainly for those online who will be watching online. We will not broadcast live July 4. We will record audio, so it will be available afterwards. And that's because uh, it will be during the GC, and our entire broadcast team will be at the GC on July 4. So if you're here locally, be here. If you watch us online, you just won't be able to watch us that week, but you'll be able to get the recording afterwards. And then a couple other announcements for those who have uh, been waiting for the uh, glitches to get fixed in your iOS version of the Remedy, which is the New Testament paraphrase. All glitches are now fixed, so you can just get the update. Just update in your app store or just put the update, and you will have uh, all those glitches fixed in that. And for those who have been waiting for the Journal of the Watcher to be available for your PC, it is now available in iTunes as an iTunes movie. And uh, so the soundtrack plays, and, and, the, on the, um, and the, the pages will automatically advance for you. So you can get it in movie form for all the people without an Android or a, uh, Apple device for their um, apps, if you can't do it that way. And I know there's a lot of people have been waiting for that, so we can let that, that just came out this week, so we're happy about that. And then today we have a couple of missionaries. We're talking about our new the quarter biblical missionaries are starting today. Lesson number one, and we have two a few missionaries from our class out today. Today here in town is J Fest, which is the local Christian radio station, is having an all day Christian concert over at Camp Jordan today. And we have a booth there, and uh, Dennis and Cami Hilton and Kirsten Weldon are out there giving away our DVDs and materials uh, to the people. They're expecting what eight to ten thousand people there today. So we want to keep them in prayer today as well. And uh, I think Dennis will be updating our Facebook page, and there's a few pictures there when they were setting up this morning already there. So, The Missionary Nature of God is the title of our first lesson. If you look at the introduction to the quarterly, the first paragraph quotes Jesus from Matthew 28, 18-20, where Jesus says these words, All authority has been given me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And I thought, okay, we've heard this. I I don't think you can be a Christian without having heard this more times than you can count. So let's just break it down point by point and ask the meaning of each uh, significant point. First, who are disciples? What, what is a disciple? A follower of Jesus. Uh, what I heard another word? Student. Student. Yes, a disciple means to teach. Yes. So disciples are are followers of Jesus who are teachable. How many people who are out there promoting themselves as followers of Jesus, followers of Jesus, who are not teachable? They are. They already know everything. There's no more learning. They've, they've got the truth. Uh, the, they've they've set, set down their stakes. And anything that should challenge their current belief system, they must defeat it. No, the disciples are teachable. And, the, and not only the disciples, if you're a disciple of Christ, you're not only teachable, you can learn. You apply what you learn to your life. You bring it in and apply it. So the disciples are people we want to make people, disciples people who are teachable, who are willing to apply to their lives. What is baptism? Baptizing them. What does it mean? Immersing them. Okay, I like this word, immersing. That's the word baptismo means to immerse. When a, back in the Bible times, if you were speaking Greek and you were to wash your dishes, you would baptismo in water to wash them. You would, you would immerse them in water to, 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 to wash your, your dishes. So yes, immerse. So in this context, though, when we go to the world to... Make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What does this immerse mean? What are we doing immerse in? Immerse in water? Did he say baptizing them in water? Is that what he said? No, he tells you what we're to baptize them in. Into the name of the Father. So the question next is then, what does the name mean? We're to baptize them not in water, but into the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So in, in Bible times, what's the name mean? Character. Character. Okay. So we're to find teachable people who can learn and assimilate into their lives, and we're to immerse their minds, their hearts, their characters into the truth about God's character. 
to immerse them in this. And then, what does it mean to observe all things? What, observe, what does observe mean? To keep certain holidays, feasts? To have certain behaviors? Is, is that what observe in this context means? What was the command that Jesus gave them? A like, new command I give you. To love one another. So we to immerse them, their minds, their characters, into the character of God, and God is love. And the command Jesus gave them is to love. So we are to immerse them into the love of God, where they love God and others more than self. It's a new, to be reborn, to be recreated, to be a new person in Christ. And then... So that the message of Jesus that they learn is assimilated into their lives. And they begin loving others more than self and, and taking that message. So here is Matthew 28, 18 through 20 from the remedy. Then Jesus walked up to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go and spread the remedy to the entire world. Teach the people of every nation, immersing their hearts and minds into the character and methods of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And teach them to live in harmony with the law of love, the design protocol upon which life is built, exactly as I have instructed you. And you can be sure that I am always with you, all the way, right through to the very end of time. Is this what you think about when you think about the Gospel Commission? No. Oh, okay. So what, what has traditionally come to mind when you think about the Gospel Commission? Well, any time I've ever heard this text, I took it literally as you're baptizing people in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Nothing but the connotation that you've just given. Nothing. Which do you think Christ meant? Yours is wonderful. Thank you. I mean, isn't that the way we've been taught in the church? That's what that text stood for? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So when we do it concretely, we baptize meaning dunking in water, saying the right words, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I baptize you, okay? And teaching them to obey all the laws. What are we actually baptizing them into? Church. Notice, this is institutional baptism. It's not an immersing into the character of God. It's an immersing into a system of thinking, an indoctrination into a way of of behaving in, in a community. I wonder how many people would agree with you on that. That paraphrase of that text. We'll see, won't we? I think, I think time will tell. I think time will tell. Is the gospel commission to get people to... Is, think The gospel commission that Jesus gave, the only read, and whichever version you read it out of, the, the NIV, the King James, the, the Remedy, whichever version, is the gospel commission intended to get people to join a certain institutional denomination? Is that its, is that its purpose? No. If that's not its purpose, then, you see, is it closer to what I'm suggesting then? Or is it both? I mean, Acts says they were added to the church daily. Yes, so they were added to the church in Acts. And in the church in the New Testament, was it institutional? Did the church in the New Testament, in fact, for the first 300 years, did the church own any property? They did not. Did they have any church buildings or they would come and sit like this and have meetings? No, they were homes. Oh, they were homes, weren't they? Yes. But was added to God's... Yes, and so, and so what is the church? into the character. Yes, so to be baptized into the church in the New Testament, was it joining an institution with a creed? You, uh, you agree to this, uh, before we baptize you, do you agree that, uh, with the doctrine of the Trinity? Do you agree with the holiness of the temple, the body, that you only eat certain foods? Do you agree with the inspired writings of Ellen White? Do you agree with, and on down the line, did they do that before they baptized them? No. Well, look in Acts, when, when, when um, the eunuch was traveling along with Philip, and he's converted. He explains that what Isaiah is talking about. Isaiah is talking about the Messiah, and he's converted. And, and the eunuch says, "Well, what what are we delaying? There's water. Let's let's do this. Let's 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 immerse me symbolically because my mind and heart want to be immersed into the reality of of the character of God. So I'm going to take this public symbol and do this." Did Philip say, "Well, first, first we have 28 creeds. You must assemble." No, it was it was baptized into Jesus, wasn't it? Right then. It wasn't instant. The point is, yes, they became part of the body of Christ, part of the church, but I'm suggesting the church cannot be defined by institutional definitions. You can't say, 
Well, if you're a Methodist, you are a member of the church. And if you're not a Methodist, you're not a member of the church. If you're an Adventist, you're a member of the church. But if you're not an Adventist, you're not a member of the church. Can you do that? Can we precisely define who's a member by an institutional membership? But if you, or and, and if you understand the character of God, though, you will understand that he's not a God who torments someone forever and ever and ever and ever for 70 years of sin. So if when you're baptized into the character of God, you understand that God is... Absolutely. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Jesus says, other sheep I have that are not of this fold. So Jesus recognizes that there are other folds. So the fact that there's a fold in other folds means that there are divisions that humans do set up. Now, uh, if we belong to an institution, we're belonging to it with all of its loss and all of its goodness. So is it perfect the way it stands? No. Is it exactly like the Book of Acts church? No. But we agree to belong to it. And so we are part of it. Yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, if anybody thought I was um, ditzing the organization and its function and its purpose, I was not. What I was suggesting is that the Gospel Commission was to baptize people into the character, the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not to, or, not to baptize people into institutional. So we shouldn't be fighting institutionally and arguing that's the Gospel Commission. That's all I'm suggesting. There's, there's places for institutions, no question. Yes, yes. Can I take it one step further? That is to... Who can baptize? Because it's been over 20 years ago, a friend um, wanted to be baptized and asked me and one other friend to baptize them in the lake because we had been close to her in her journey to Christ. And, uh, but she wasn't officially a church member and I had to really think about it. I was like, well, how can I do this? You know, is this okay? Um, and she, but she, it was very important to her that well, I help put her under see, the, the, the The question is, are you baptizing them into Jesus Christ, or are you baptizing them into institutional membership? Exactly. You, any Christian can baptize another Christian into Jesus Christ. But only a member that holds certain credentials within the institution can do it in order to bring someone into institutional loyalty. So institutions will say, no, we don't recognize certain uh, uh, baptisms, if you will, if you're not credentialed to do it for us. But Jesus Christ doesn't make that distinction if you're baptizing into Christ. So somebody can be baptized into the body of believers, but not be a member of that particular institution. Yes. Okay, yes. Um, just one other thing. In um, Acts 19, uh, Paul, uh, this is about Paul in Ephesus. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. We found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him that is in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And then when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Okay, so what do you all hear? What are the two baptisms? John's baptism is an immersion into the, one's diagnosis and terminal condition. I'm baptized in, in the baptism of repentance. I realize I'm sick, I'm terminal, I can't fix myself, I accept my terminal state. They were baptized and convicted of their sins. But they weren't baptized into the remedy. They weren't baptized into the solution. They didn't partake the cure. The baptism of Jesus Christ is baptism into the character of God, partaken of through Christ, that we now not only are recognized, because the first step to any problem is, you must be diagnosed and recognize you have the problem. If you don't admit you have the problem, you will never take the solution. That's John's baptism. Jesus' baptism is a solution to the problem. And thus, they're now getting the remedy and the cure, and that then empowered them to live victorious. Before, they're just living humbly and insecure and convicted. Now they're living victorious with power to love others. So that's the big difference. That's really good. Thank you for sharing that. So, um, second paragraph, it says, in our introduction, 
Or is it third paragraph? Let's see here. Third paragraph. It's not hard either to see the link between these words spoken to the eleven in Galilee and the words spoken to John on the Isle of Patmos years later. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth and sea and spring of waters. When you hear the first of the three angels' messages, what do you hear? Traditionally, it's be afraid. You're going to get judged. Okay. Fear God and give glory to him. Let's, let's, so before we can break this down, context it for me. Are we in a war? What's the central issue in the war? We, we wage war and restore it. We have divine weapons to demolish everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God is the central issue in the war. Um, because who was accused of being someone you can't trust? And who did Paul say in Romans chapter 3, verse 4, would be proved right when he was judged? Did you realize that Paul, by, God, you will be proved right when you are judged? Or I think one version says, God, will, you, you will win your case when you take it into court. With that in mind then, How do you hear Revelation 14? Fear God, give glory to him. In other words, be in awe, not not be terrified. Be in awe, that's the word. And give glory, what's give glory mean? Reveal his character in your life because you've been immersed, you've immersed your heart and mind into the truth of who he is. And so his character now flows out through you, reveal his character, Give, give glory to him for the hour in which he is being judged. The hour of his judgment has come. The hour in human history has come for people to finally see God for who he is and make a right judgment. Whoa, he's not like this arbitrary dictator who I must fear who's going to torment people in hell forever. He's not like that at all. He's like Jesus. Wow, I can trust him. Worship him who made, worship the designer, the creator, not the dictator. Yes. Fear here mean to honor? Yes, honor, awe, be in, be in respect of. Yes, not to be terrorized by. First angel's message out of Revelation 14 from the remedy. Then I saw another messenger in, in midair, and he had the eternal good news about God's character of love to proclaim to everyone on earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people, which represents a movement of people, this is parenthetical, a uh, movement of people who arise to proclaim the truth about God's character of love throughout the world. He said in a clear, resounding voice, be in awe of God and glorify him by living his methods of love. Because the hour has come for everyone to make a judgment about God and worship the designer, creator, and builder who has made heavens, the earth, the sea, the springs of water, all of which operate upon the law of love. Where do we find ourselves in God's plan today? Does God have a plan for his people to be missionaries to the world today? What message are we taking to the world today? We often hear things like, well, we're the remnant or the remnant of God. Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. Right? And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. Let's break it down. Who's the dragon? Satan. Who's the woman? Which church? Which institution? <laughs> Is it an institution here? Do you know it is argued that it is? Or is this the church represented by those who are true to him and have his true character in their hearts and represent him rightly to the world? Is that what it's talking about here, that remnant that have the... Okay, let's see. Let's keep keep going through the definitions. Who keep the commandments of God. What does this mean, keep the commandments of God? Okay, because were there a group of people 2,000 years ago who kept the ten in a behavioral way? They t- double tie, they, 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 had, they wanted Jesus off the cross by sunset so they could keep the right day. Can you behaviorally keep the ten? 
but still be God's enemy. Yeah. It's not talking about a behavioral, mechanical performance. It's talking about a, a heart, that you said, has the law. What's the new covenant in Hebrews 10? I will write my law where? Heart and mind. Is that a list of rules in the heart and mind or a method of living, a motive of action where I have died to self? It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We become partakers of the divine nature. We are motivated to love God and love others more than self. This is keeping the commandments of God. But then this last one, have the testimony of Jesus. Now, what is the testimony of Jesus? Okay, here we go. And she's quoting, she's quoting uh, Revelation chapter 19, 10. Here, here it is. It says, um, I felt the feet and worship, but he said, do not do it. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This is uh, Revelation uh, nineteen ten. And so then the question is, well, if the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy and we're holding to the testimony of Jesus, then we're holding to the spirit of prophecy. What is the spirit of prophecy? That's the next question. I've asked ministers that question. I said, was the spirit of prophecy named after the text? <laughs> yes, it was. Okay, so, so the question then, is the spirit of prophecy, is this phrase interpreted, should it be interpreted mean that, that it's an institution that has a single deceased member of that institution who was blessed with a particular gift of the spirit sometime in the past. And if that happened, there's an institution with a single member in that institution who had the gift of prophecy, then that is what we're talking about. Is that what this text means? I actually think that particular interpretation misdirects our focus away from what the message of the end time is supposed to be. What's the central issue in the war again? God's character. And if we go to the idea that the, the spirit of prophecy is a single person who had a particular gift of the spirit, and I'm not disputing a single person had a di- particular gift of the spirit, I'm not disputing that at all. I'm saying if this message, this idea of the spirit of prophecy means that, then it, it leads us to become somewhat self-focused and somewhat promoting of the institution as being the fulfillment of the prophecy because this institution now has the fulfillment and we have to be part of the institution and we become elitist. You remember 2,000 years ago? There was a group of people who had multiple members that had the gift of prophecy. The whole Old Testament prophets were all part of that organization and they had it. No question about it. How many times have we heard someone stand up and say, we are the remnant? Yes, exactly. But what happens when you then take that attitude, we are the remnant, the Jews 2,000 years ago, we are God chosen, we have the gift of prophecy, we have all these blessings, God has chosen us, and therefore we're special, then it leads to this, John 11, verse 49 and 50. What fo- this is Caiaphas speaking. What fools you are. Don't you realize that it is better for you to let one man die for the people instead of having the whole nation destroyed? It leads to institutional protection. We must protect the institution. The institution is what's blessed. And we must protect the institution. The church, we must, pl- we must protect it. And so let's crucify Jesus to protect our nation. Because we're blessed. We've got the spirit of prophecy. We must do it. This is what they did. They were blessed. And they were blessed. I'm not, I'm not saying they weren't. But it takes the focus. How about if uh, we interpret the phrase for the testimony of Jesus' spirit of prophecy to mean... Um, Something different. Let's, let's read this out of the Good News Translation. Here's the Good News Translation. Let's see if this changes the, the focus. I fell down at the feet to worship him, but he said to me, Don't do it. I am a servant uh, together with you and your fellow believers, all those who hold to the truth that Jesus revealed. Worship God. For the truth that Jesus revealed is what inspires the prophets. Does that sound different to you? The truth that Jesus reveals is what inspires the prophets. In other words, is the Spirit of prophecy, the spirit of the prophets, the spirit that enlightened the prophets to give the prophecy they prophesied. This is the remedy version. I was so overwhelmed with awe, I fell down to honor him, but he told me, don't honor me. I'm a fellow worker on God's team with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of, to hold to the testimony Jesus revealed about his father. Give honor to God and worship him for the testimony Jesus gave about his father is the same as that which inspired the prophets. What is our mission as missionaries today? Is it to present the truth about God first, last, and always? Is that our mission? 
truth about God, first, last, and always? Well, here's a quotation from one of the founders of this institution. This is out of Christ's Object Lessons 4.15. It is the darkness of misapprehension of God that is enshrouding the world. Men are losing their knowledge of his character. It has been misunderstood and misinterpreted. At this time, a message from God is to be proclaimed, a message illuminating in its influence and saving in its power. His character is to be made known. Into the darkness of the world is to be shed the light of his glory, the light of his goodness, mercy, and truth. The last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is the revelation of his character of love. This is the message this institution is to use its resources to promote, I'm going to suggest. So I'm all for the institution. I love it. We can organize. We can come together. We can pool resources. And then together we can share this message that will transform lives. Yes? Jesus said uh, about the Old Testament prophets, they testify of me. So the fact that... You search the scripture looking for eternal life, but these are they which testify of me. Yes? So if they're testifying of him, that's a spirit of prophecy testifying of Jesus. So the testimony of Jesus was his life because his life reflected the things that the spirit of prophecy said about him. Oh, I love what he just said. Everybody hear that? He said his, his testimony was his life, how he lived, and Jesus said, if you see me, you've seen the Father. And in John 17, chapter, um, John chapter 17, verses um, 3 and, and uh, 4, 3 and 5, he says, Father, I finished the work you've given me to do. Actually, 4 and 6. I finished the work you've given me to do. I have made you known, or I've revealed you. So I love that. Exactly. This is his testimony. The question is, when we give the testimony of Jesus, when you go forward to evangelize, when you go forward with the, the gospel message, are you giving the same testimony Jesus gave about his Father? Or do we give a testimony that Jesus is in heaven working on his Father to get his Father to forgive us? Yes, go ahead. And bring back to the first angel's message. Fear God and give glory to Him. These yes. verses in John that you were quoting says, "I have manifested Thy name. I have glorified You, know, Father. I have glorified You. I've done the work You gave me to do. So, giving glory to God is declaring God's character." So let's let's pick this up. Yes, go ahead. Comment. That um, in Revelation, I believe it's twelve. It says uh, they overcame Him, talking about the devil by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony. We will carry the same testimony. We'll have the same faith as Jesus. Oh, I love this. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb. Now, this is symbolic language. It's not red corpuscles, is it? Blood is symbolic of the life. Okay? They overcame by the blood or the life of the Lamb. That, and what was the next part? By their testimony. So by partaking of the life of Christ, we live the life of Christ. No longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. So our testimony, and and the very next phrase of that verse tells you what they do. These are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. They're not self survival of the fittest, me first, protect myself at all costs focus. They are self-sacrificial. Greater love is no man that he give his life for a friend. So beautiful. Thank you. Yes. And I think more than just telling people that, character of God, we need to be the character of God. That's right, exactly. If you went to a, a doctor and he properly diagnosed and then properly treated you, you took his treatment, you were cured of cancer or whatever, whose glory would that be that you were cured? Would it be a part, you took the, the treatment, so yay you, or would it be the person who developed the treatment and exactly. then gave it to you so exactly. that you were healed, and that is your glorification of God's goodness. You'll go everywhere saying, hey, this doctor's great. You got this. You need to go to him. He cured me. Changed my life. Set me free. Changed my life. Yep. Second paragraph, Sabbath lesson. It says, all, all is not lost, though. Uh, the first paragraph talks about how we're all sin, fall, fall short of the glory of God, and so forth. It says, all is not lost. All, on the contrary, Jesus Christ has died for all our sins. And through his death, we have the promise of salvation, of restoration, of all things to be made new. And it's all new heaven and new earth, and so forth. Jesus died for our sins, which means what? And the question, you know, I come to here often because it's really clarifying. Which law lens do you look through? Do you look through design law, God the creator, the builder of the fabric of the cosmos, his laws are the laws upon which reality work? Or do you look through laws that function like human beings, simple, simple system of rules that you then must enforce with external threats and punishments? Man's law, 
We can pass laws to make marijuana legal. We cannot pass laws to make marijuana healthy. You see the difference between man's laws and God's laws. Do you see God's laws as design laws upon which reality work, or do you see his laws functioning like human law, system of rules that he must enforce? So with that in mind, Jesus died for our sins. Think about it. If it's imposed law, you come up with stuff like this. And I was watching a TV program between a discussion between a Catholic priest and a Protestant theologian talking about um, how our sins are dealt with. And the Catholic priest was talking about how the sins are dealt with through the Eucharist and partaking of the Mass. The sins are, are then the body and blood of Christ are, are partaken of. And, and then Jesus then presents uh, his, uh, his victory to his Father and so forth and so on. The uh, Protestant argued that, uh, that the Eucharist sacrifices Jesus over and over again because every time they take it, it becomes the literal um, body of Jesus. And so he's being sacrificed. And the Bible says you're sacrificed once and, and for all. And so the, the Catholic priest said these words. This is a quote. And I've got the link in here if you want to go watch it yourself. Here's the quote. There are two elements to any sacrifice, the immolation and the offering. The immolation is a bloody death. The lamb is slain. What is precious about that is the life is in the blood of the lamb. And it, this is precious and that pays back God. That's how the Old Testament ritual used to work. The immolation happened once, but the offering is something Christ does for all eternity. He is right now in the presence of the Father, in the Holy of Holies, in the eternal presence, offering himself to the Father for the forgiveness of our sins. Christ isn't killed again and again and again. He is offering in the Eucharist, in the same eternal presence as his Father offers himself, in the same eternal presence as Christ offers himself over and over again. So the priest is saying, it was in this offering of the sacrifice over and over again to God that sins are being paid for. So each time we sin, we must take the Mass in order to have the sacrifice of Christ pay God for our sin. This is what they're teaching. How do you think the Protestant theologian responded to this? Here's the Protestant theologian. He, the, uh, the Protestant theologian said, Christ is not in heaven offering his sacrifice over and over again to God to pay for our sins. Oh no, this is the words of the Protestant, Protestant theologian. He is in heaven offering his merits to the Father to pay for our sins over and over again. So in the view, in the Protestant view, all human sins, see here's the difference, in the Protestant view, all human sins were placed upon Christ at the cross and paid for there. But when we pray for forgiveness, then Christ goes to the Father and reminds the Father of what he has already done in paying for the sins at some time in the past. Thus, he reminds him of what he's earned or achieved in the past. Thus, his merits are being presented to the Father to remind the Father, I've already paid for those sins because they were paid for in the past. Do you see the silliness of this argument? Yes. This is silly. The devil's laughing. He's laughing. Do you realize how many millions of Catholics and, and Protestants through the generations have fought over this idea? It's, it's both paganism. And it's exactly, both of them, notice, believe, and, and the core is they both believe in a law that operates no differently than the laws that we make. Yep. A system of rules that when you break must have punishment inflicted or there's no justice. So they both believe Jesus had to do something, some legal action to pay for the sins and that the Father is the supreme judge who must have something offered to him to satisfy his sense of justice and deal with his anger and wrath. The Catholic view, Jesus is presenting a sacrifice. The Protestant view, he already did all that. He just reminds the Father through his merits that he's done that. Yes? From my understanding, I came across an LG White, maybe it was early writings, and Jesus would say to the Father on occasions, to remind the Father, my blood, he said it three times, my blood, my blood, my blood. Is that a merit? I don't know the definition. Actually, I would ch challenge you to go back and, and review that. Because I've reviewed those statements, and she doesn't say that he's saying it to the Father. She says she's saying it before the Father. And there's a big difference. If you put the, all the context together and put all the scripture together, Jesus said in John 16, 24, I will not pray the Father for you because the Father loves you himself. He, uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare us some, but gave him up, how we not along with him give us all things. Um, who is it that condemns Christ Jesus? He is at the Father's right hand and is at the Father's right hand and is also interceding for us. 
also in addition to who? To the Father. He's at the Father's right hand. He's before the Father interceding for us. But who's, if the Father is for us, who can be against us? The Father is interceding for us too. So it's not Jesus before the Father interceding with the Father. It's Jesus before... No, so who's, who's he interceding with? Let me finish. Let's just thought. Jesus said to his apostles, it's expedient for you that I go, because if I don't go, the comforter won't come. And when the comforter comes, he's not going to speak on his own. He's going to speak what he hears. Who do you think the comforter's listening to? He is Jesus' representative on earth. The comforter is going to convict you and woo you. And so Jesus is in heaven before the Father, pleading his blood to you. I died for you. I gave my life for you. I love you. And the Holy Spirit takes his pleadings and brings them to your heart and mind to convict you of your need. It is not a pleading to the Father. It is Christ carrying out his work in the temple to cleanse you and me. That's what he's doing. So this whole view here that we're talking about that I read to you, this is based on imperial law with a judicial magistrate who must inflict punishments because... If I don't inflict punishments, there's no justice because it's all based on false law construct and Roman law construct. Come back to design law and you see God is creator. We're deviant. He's working through Christ to heal and restore. Yes, Wendell. Depends on which direction you feel Christ is facing. Yes. Christ is not facing his father. Christ is facing us. That's right. He's always been an emissary to us. God gave him to us. Yes, and so when you think about intercession... God intervenes in three places, as I understand it. And you can see these in Scripture. He intervenes with the principalities and powers of darkness, holding back evil forces, restraining power. And there's lots of examples in Scripture. I'm not going to give them all to you at this moment. He inter- intervenes in our hearts and minds. He said in Genesis chapter 3, um, I-, I will put enmity between you and the woman, talking to the serpent. He gives us a desire for good, a conviction of wrongdoing, l- willing us. He's intervening in our hearts and minds to draw us back. And third, through Jesus Christ, God intervened in the natural course of what sin does to a being. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, without Jesus Christ, the natural course of what sin does is eternal destruction. Because of Jesus Christ, he partook of our humanity and he interceded to give us an alternate outcome. We can take a different path now. This is God's intercession. It's in intercessions in reality, not with the Godhead amongst themselves. That intercession amongst themselves, that's pagan. Let me give you some quotes from one of the founders of the church regarding this whole idea. This is the first one. is General, Con- General Conference Daily Bolton, March 8, 2, 1897. In assuming human nature that he might reach to the very depths of human woe and misery and lift man up. What's he, what's this, what's he going down there for? To lift man up. Christ has shown what estimate he places upon the human race. In this work, everything was at stake. Satan claimed to be the lawful owner of the fallen race. Pause. Who takes the legal approach? If you start, fall, fall, if you're arguing legalities, this is Satan's platform. This is where Satan operates. In, in, uh, in Desire of Ages, page 761, I believe it is, it says, um, in the opening of the Great Controversy, Satan declared the law of God cannot be obeyed. That if man should sin, God would, would, uh, would be unable to forgive. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. This is Satan's view, this whole legal view. Anyway, so he's arguing that. Continue on with the quote. And with what persistent effort did he seek to overthrow Christ through his subtlety? It was only by the most desperate conflict with the powers of Satan that Christ could accomplish his purpose. Now, what's his purpose? His purpose of restoring the almost obliterated image of God in man and place his own signature upon his forehead. It was a desperate battle, for Satan had so long worked in league with human intelligences as to almost completely intercept every ray of light shining from the throne of God upon the human mind. The cross of Calvary alone could destroy the work of the devil. In that wondrous sacrifice, all eyes were called to behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. The love of Christ kindles in the heart of all who continue to behold him. Next quote, Great Controversy 645, it's shorter. In the beginning, man was created in the likeness of God, not only in character, but in form and feature. Sin defaced and almost obliterated the divine image. But Christ came to restore that which had been lost. What's he coming to do? Signs of the Times, February 11, 1897. Weakened through sin, we cannot 
of ourselves keep the law of God. But Christ came to our world to restore the moral image of God in men and to bring them back from the path of disobedience to the path of obedience. His mission to the world was to reveal the character of God by living the law, which is the foundation of his government. You see, this is design law stuff. To recreate, to restore, to heal, to make remedy, to rebuild, to put us back in harmony is how life is built to operate. This is last one, Signs of the Times, August 26, 1897. Christ came to give expression to the law of God, to represent the Father's character. He came to minister to men to restore in him the moral image of God. Notice the purpose. There's no legal payment going on. God doesn't have to be appeased. There's nothing that has to be, that this be done to the Father. But something has to be done to us. We have to be healed. We have to be regenerated. We have to be recreated. Christ came to achieve this. So, the quote, God wants, in planning, plan ultimately is to have a new heaven and a new earth. How does God get a new heaven and a new earth? What's the key to making it new? What's the key to making it new? Is it merely an issue of recreating physical matter? Is that the issue of a new heaven and earth? God simply uses divine creative power to reformulate molecules. Is that the way he gets a new heaven and earth? Is that the issue, the key issue? He could have done that at the beginning of sin. If that had been the issue. Ah, see. Why does that Brian said he could have done that at the beginning of sin. He could have wiped out and reorganized the molecules of reality to create a new heaven and earth. This is not about creative power to reorganize molecules. That's easy. That's the easy part for God. Is it about having an environment without fear of God? Without selfishness? Without distrust? An environment in which the beings who live there are 100% self-sacrificial, loving God and others, um, more than self, in other words, 100% trustworthy. That this is the environment of the new heaven and new earth. Well, how does God get such a place? How can he get that place? Can he get that place by the exercise of might and power? So Zechariah says, Zechariah 4.6, Not by might, nor by power, but by the way, the Spirit works, says the Lord. How does the Spirit work? The Spirit is the Spirit of truth and truth and love. Truth and love, truth and love, truth and love. He gets it by restoring it back to its original design. Which is via the winning us to trust where we open the heart by truth and love, and then he can recreate us in his image. Yeah. It's coming back to worship designer. Yes. To back that up, Zachariah's prophecy, uh, once he was able to speak when his son John the Baptist was born, he said, um, praise be to the Lord, this is in Luke 1, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us, um, etc. And then salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our fathers to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies, to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Well, well read. That's Zechariah's prophecy about what Jesus was coming to do. Exactly. All right, let's, let's jump to Monday's lesson. And in the first paragraph, it says, Embedded in the creation account is a warning God gave about not eating of the, from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So right from the start, we can see the moral elements granted humanity, something not seen in, uh, in any of the other living creatures. The capacity to make moral judgments reveal the image of God in man. And so I thought about this question of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil and the question of moral judgment. And let's just ask the question really quick and run through the seven levels of moral development. Why is it wrong to take of the fruit of knowledge of good and evil through the seven levels? Level one, reward and punishment. It would be wrong to take of that fruit because if you do, you're going to get punished. And you avoid it because you don't want to get punished. This is level one thinking. Level two, marketplace exchange. You'd be wrong to eat of the tree because it breaks our deal with God. We get all this garden. We get all this good fruit. We get this great place. We get to stay here. I have access to the tree of life. If we keep the deal, if we, did, if we take the fruit from that tree, we break the deal and we get kicked out of the garden. We don't want to lose our deal, so we're going to not take the fruit of the tree. Level three, social conformity. It'd be wrong to, it, it is wrong to eat if my community says it's wrong. If my community agrees it's right, then it's right. 
they had a community community uh, vote there, and they eventually voted to eat there. Two of them. It says level four, law and order. It is wrong because it breaks God's law and is treason against the divine government, which would require a just God to inflict the death penalty. It is right not to eat because we avoid legal trouble with God. Level five, love for others. It's wrong to eat because it would be an act of selfishness, taking what is not one's own. When we love others, we don't take what is another's for ourselves. It is right not to eat because we want to protect the best interest of the other. Level six, principle-based living. It's wrong to eat because it would deviate from God's design for life and infect them with the terminal condition. It is right not to eat um, because they would continue to live in harmony with God's design for life. And level seven, understanding friend of God. It is wrong to eat because it breaks trust with God, which violates the law of love, alters their condition, and obstructs God's purpose for the creation of earth and humankind. And do you notice again, if at all these levels people are not eating, but only level five and above can be trusted. Level four and below require some external threat in order for them to obey. Level four and below is imposed law thinking. Level four and below is fear-based, self-centered. Level five and above is conversion, where you love others more than self and come to see God and his methods as, as the, the actual healthy way to live. It's an other-centered, purpose-driven life. And now it's time to turn to something very a special event in our class this morning. In just a moment, I'm going to have Michael and Stephanie Land, and, and my, uh, uh, which Michael's my stepson, for those who don't know, and, and Stephanie's his wife, uh, to come forward. And we're going to dedicate Dexter uh, to God this morning. But before they come forward, I, I want to share a couple of things. A couple of weeks ago, as I was thinking about Dexter's uh, upcoming dedication, I received this letter in the mail addressed to Come and Reason Ministries. Thank you so much for the ministry you're providing. It has been a blessing to me. I've enjoyed sharing your site and materials with others. I grew up a Seventh-day Adventist, went to our local academy, first through high school, graduation. In the first grade, we had our well-meaning teacher read a story about the end of time that left me with nightmares well into my second grade year and occasionally thereafter. It was a repetitive nightmare that was the scene of Jesus knocking at my door. But when I answered it, he shook his head at me, letting me know that I was not accepted, not saved. Prior to this, I felt completely loved and safe in my relationship with Jesus. But I was five at the telling of the story and very sensitive, and I placed myself in the scenes of the story very effectively. It changed my life from love-based to fear-based and resulted in much pain and many unhealthy decisions. By the grace of God, I have learned that the lie, that lies are the foundation of Satan's attack on us. And I've come to believe he makes his attacks on the very young as often as possible. The Lord has corrected many erroneous beliefs through my own study and counseling. However, I have continued to find listening to your Bible study class and reading the remedy that there are more to be corrected. I guess we never stop growing. Thank you again. Well, this letter struck me as I read it a couple of weeks ago, thinking about the upcoming dedication, that with this insight that Satan attacks the very young. And I immediately thought of these two sentences out of the preface of the book, The God-Shaped Brain. I wondered, would Jesus be happy if we presented him in such a way that the children would not want to be with him or know him? Isn't something wrong if in taking, talking about God we frighten the children? Yes, I think there's something terribly wrong we present God in such a way that it incites fear in our children. Michael and Stephanie want to do all in their power to ensure their children are raised without such fear, but with an abiding love and trust in God. So Michael, Steph, Dexter, and Lennox, come on up. So um, as I was considering what to share with you this week, I came across the description of how Jesus, Jesus was raised in the desire of ages. I'm going to share this, this little with, with you. It's for page 69 for those who'd like to, to check that out later. So since the earliest times, the faithful in Israel had given much care to the education of youth. The Lord had directed that even from babyhood, the ch- children should be taught of his goodness and of his greatness, especially as revealed in his law. Fathers and mothers were to instruct their children that the law of God is an expression of his character and that as they received the principles of the law into the heart, the image of God was traced on the mind and soul. Jesus' mother was his first human teacher, 
From her lips and from the scrolls of the prophets, he learned heavenly things. His early years were given to the study of God's word, and spread out before him was the great library of God's created works. He gathered stores of scientific knowledge from nature. He studied the life of plants and animals and the life of man. From his earliest years, he was possessed of one purpose. He lived to bless others. For this, he found resources in nature. New ideas and ways of means flashed into his mind. Thus, to Jesus, the significance of the word and works of God was unfolded as he was trying to understand the reasons of things. Every child may gain knowledge as Jesus did. As we try to become acquainted with our Heavenly Father through his word, angels will draw near. Our minds will be strengthened. Our characters will be elevated and refined. We shall become more like our Savior. And as we behold the beautiful and grand in nature, our affections go out after God. While the spirit is all, the soul is invigorated by coming into contact with the infinite through his works. Every child may grow in knowledge as Jesus did. So Michael and Stephanie, do you recognize God has blessed you with the privilege of parenting your second child, Dexter? Do you desire to dedicate Dexter as you have Lennox to the Lord? Then Michael and Stephanie land. I have four questions for you to answer and to help you remember the, the commitment you are making here today to raise Dexter in the land of the, the Lord your God has given you. I'm going to use your last name, Land, L-A-N-D, as an acronym to help you remember. So L, love. Do you commit yourself to raise Dexter in the love of God, teaching him the truth about God's character and law of love? A, advance. Do you pledge as Christian parents, to advance in truth, to teach Dexter to think and reason for himself, educating him to integrate the truth of God from Scripture, nature, and experience, seeking to help Dexter develop a mind like Christ. Nurture. Do you promise to give yourselves for Dexter's continual health, welfare, nurturing him from your resources? And defend. Do you dedicate yourselves to defend Dexter from destructive influences by praying for him on a regular basis, seeking God's wisdom in your decisions, asking for heavenly angels to be his attendants, and requesting the Holy Spirit to inspire, develop, and direct in his life. Then you have dedicated yourselves to raise Dexter to understand reality, to understand God's character and design and purposes in life. You've dedicated yourselves to raise Dexter to have a meaningful life, a useful life, a full and rewarding life, for you have dedicated yourselves to raise Dexter to live a life as an understanding friend of God. So, grandparents, great-grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins, and any other family, come on forward as we pray for uh, Michael, Steph, and Dexter. Come on forward, yes. All, all the family, come on forward. And for those that don't know, Stephanie is Dean and Zoe's daughter. Michael is Fred, down there, and Christy's son. All right, we're going to go ahead and pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Michael, Stephanie, Dex, and Lennox. They've come here this morning to yet dedicate themselves to raising Dexter in your methods, your, your principles, to, to raise him to, to love you and to know your love, to uh, advance in the knowledge of your kingdom, and to uh, be a, an understanding friend of yours. We ask that you will give them wisdom, your angels will watch over protect, you will walk next to Dexter's entire life, and that he may be used to glorify you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Thank you all very much.